As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Please join me in prayer. Lord, it still, it stuns me as I read these words to think that you would extend such an opportunity to four fishermen in Galilee, the Gentiles. Lord, I would, I would beg of you that you would extend to all of us such an opportunity that we too might be fishers of men. That we too would be willing to leave behind any encumbrance. And to participate into the greatest rescue mission in the history of the world. To save sinners from damnation by proclaiming the immense grace that is found in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray that these words in Mark would not just be a learning exercise for us this afternoon, but they would be transformative. That even as I preach, my heart, my affections, my will would be transformed as well. And that as a church, you would make us to be a powerful voice of evangelism in our day. Spirit, I beg you to pour out your grace upon us that we too might participate in this immense opportunity. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I think one of the saddest conversations a person can ever have with another person is when they're visiting them at the, as, as that person comes to the end of their life. Only to realize that they have squandered almost all of it on emptiness. This was, in fact, the reality that Solomon faced. So he looked back over his life and recalled all the different things, all the opportunities, all the resources he had available to him. He pitifully mutters, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he could do nothing to change it. The life was gone. The time was past. And even today, there are multiple schools, multiple organizations that uh, boast that they will help you to change the world if you join them. And in fact, they may do some good. But when all is said and done, 
And when we stand on eternity's shores and life is no more, what difference will it make? What difference will all the good that we do, if not for the kingdom, what difference will it make? All of us want to make a difference with our lives. And that's why we love stories of heroic men and heroic women. Like Joan of Arc, Churchill, Braveheart. Fiction or nonfiction, we are inspired by such characters because, because we too want to leave, lead a life of significance. We fear futility. See, not one of us wants to end our life and look back and realize that all of that blood, sweat, and tears that we poured out was in the end just upon emptiness. Vanity of vanities. And some of us probably wish that we could have been around in the 1500s, that we we could have stood with Luther at Worms. As he declared, here I stand, I could do no other. Or, or maybe in Germany, prior to World War II, when the Nazis were rounding up the Jews, incarcerating them, and putting them into death camps. Maybe, maybe we too wish we could have been there, and like Corey Ten Boom, rescued some and, pres- and, 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 and hit, hit, hidden them in our house. We might wish, if only I could have been at Dunkirk, And like those other fishermen, I could have helped engage in rescuing those stranded soldiers on the beaches. If only I could have supported John Newton and William Wilberforce in their valiant effort to obliterate the the slave trade in Great Britain. We long to be like such people. Because we long to make a difference. With our lives. And yet we fail to realize that right here, right now, we are in the midst of the most epic battle in all of history. And I say that without any sensationalism. And we are equipped. With all the resources we need to save people. We don't need to go back in time. We don't need to cross the oceans. Each one of us here is poised to make a difference for all of eternity. All you need to do is follow Christ. If you want to change the world. Follow Christ. And I can say that with absolute confidence because of what we see here in the chapter before us. For here Christ calls for fishermen to enlist in the greatest rescue mission in the history of mankind. He calls them out of their routines, out of the mundane, out of the tedium, And banality 
He calls them to decisively abandon their temporal investments in order to invest in eternal gains. And this call is bound up in two words. Follow me. This passage is about following Christ in order to engage in the greatest rescue mission in history with eternal ramifications. And what it shows us is that following Him really entails three things. Joining Him in His mission to save souls. Following Him means also becoming like Him. It also means leaving behind lesser things. Now you might recall that last week we left off in verse 15 with Jesus proclaiming the gospel of God as he went throughout all of Galilee and he proclaimed, repent and believe because the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then right after that, you'll notice Mark immediately turns our attention to the calling of these four men. And these two accounts are purposefully parallel. These, this, the calling of these two sets of brothers. They parallel one another. And in fact, you'll see that the, the structure actually puts emphasis on Jesus' calling them. His call to join him and their Willingness to follow him and leave everything else behind. That's the point of this passage. So let's look at the the first point. Following Christ means saving souls. I mean, what is it that Jesus says as he passes by these men? This isn't his first encounter with them. Jesus has actually known these men for quite a long time. But Mark skips right to this moment. And the question I was going to ask is, what is it that Jesus says to these men that compels them to immediately leave all these things behind and to follow him? Well, it's seen in what follows. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's why they left. And there's actually a, a purposeful play on words here in the, in the Greek as well. Mark says that they were fishermen. And then Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, do you want to spend the rest of your life, the rest of your time, casting nets into the sea and just dragging out fish in order to make a buck? Or do you want to join me in the, this great rescue mission? Well, what does this mean that he calls them to become fishers of men? Well, remember that just a few verses earlier, we're told that Jesus had been going throughout Galilee proclaiming that the time was at hand. The time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is a proclamation of judgment. Thus the injunction, repent and believe. Why would he say, 
repent and believe. Because with this proclamation comes judgment. The day of the Lord is being announced. When God would pour out his wrath upon all the Gentile nations and all unbelieving Israel. And so when he turns to these men and calls them to become fishers of men, they know exactly what he's talking about. Consider the parable Jesus gives in Matthew 13 of the coming kingdom. You might be familiar with it. In verse 47, he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that's thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And consider also just the imagery a few verses later with Jesus' baptism. What this symbolized is that Jesus is the new ark in order to save men from the judgment of God. As you recall, in the story of Noah, only eight Men were saved from the wrath of God that was poured out upon the world. And they were saved by being preserved in the ark. All the rest of mankind drowned under God's judgment. So again, Jesus is saying, in effect, do you want to spend your life catching fish? Or do you want to cast out a better net and save those upon whom God's judgment is coming. How do you want to spend your life? But he's asking them. Jesus is calling them to volunteer in the greatest rescue operation in history. And it reminds me of the words of C.T. Studd, the missionary to China. He said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. This is the heart of an evangelist. What if, as you're going home today, you're walking in the parking lot, packing the kids up, and right before you, Watch Jesus Christ. And he says to you these same words. Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. What would you say? What would you do? Well, I ask that question because that is exactly what he's calling you to do. In these verses. That's what those who repent and believe do. They follow Jesus in his mission to save souls. And you don't have to be like C.T. Studd and go to China. You don't have to go to Africa. You don't even have to go to Europe. You don't have to leave Hillsborough. 
God, if God has placed you here, he has called you to be an evangelist here. And if he calls you someplace else, it's because you have already been faithful as an evangelist here. Recognize he didn't send the disciples out into all the world until after years of ministry. After they had preached uh, preached faithfully for three years in their own neighborhood. And notice also the, the tense that Jesus used here. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. The point is, is this didn't happen immediately. This is a, this is a process that took time. The disciples didn't really become fishers of men until after Christ died. And the, the Spirit descended upon them at Pentecost. So just think. Very practically, this week, I imagine many of you are going to be in, 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 a, in a rich position to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with friends and family members. Because in a few days, our nation will be celebrating Thanksgiving. And just think, who might you share with? And I don't think you need to be obnoxious. And just force that conversation to take place. But you should be purposeful. And you should be prayerful. In fact, I would encourage you right now, as you think about who you might be interacting with this week, who's an unbeliever, and write that person's name down in the bulletin. And commit yourself to praying for an opportunity, if God might present it, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Through these verses, Jesus is asking you, will you follow me and join me in the greatest rescue operation in the history of mankind? Following Christ means saving souls. Following Christ also means living like Christ. It's a call to discipleship. So it's bound up in this word to follow you might recall Jesus' words in Luke 6.40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. So that's the aim of discipleship. That's what the disciples were seeking as they left everything behind and followed him. They wanted to be like him. It's also a call to deny themselves, just as he does. Mark 8.34 and 36 If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's also a call to be a servant just like he is. Jesus said in Mark 10, whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever is first among you must be last, slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to follow me, he's saying, you need to become the lowliest of servants. Think about how that applies to Thanksgiving dinner. How can you show 
the reality of God's transforming work in your life by serving others this week. Well, this is a call to become like Jesus in his character. So they're not only to accompany him on his mission, they're to copy him. They're to imitate him. They're to become like him. Especially in all of his character, in his humility. Recall the humility of Christ, Philippians chapter 2. Who didn't count equality with God a thing to be held on to, but emptied himself. Becoming a slave. It's a call to be like him in his humility. In his gentleness. In his faithfulness. In his boldness. In his devotion. He set his face like flint. And he would not be swayed from the Father's purpose. In his holiness. It's a call to be like him in his compassion. Recall that as Jesus looked out over Jerusalem, he broke down in tears. Because he knew they were going to reject him. And perish because of that rejection. But it begs the question, how does one become Christ-like though? I mean, how do we become Christ-like? Well, truth be told, it's actually something that He does in you rather than something that we do. It's a work that He brings about. However, He does use means. And we see that throughout the Scripture. So what are some of these means whereby God will use these means to help us to grow? Well, first of all, follow him by reading the word. And this is, this is the most obvious because it's by reading the word that we see what he was like. Read the gospels, study him, examine him, seek to imitate him. Consider how he spoke and lived, especially how he responded to trials that he faced. Secondly, As you examine your life in comparison to Him and you see your shortcomings, confess them. Pray. Confess to God how you failed. Acknowledge these things as sinful and plead with Him to change you. And in some instances, confess openly to others that they would see too that you too grieve over your weaknesses and shortcomings. Thirdly, spend time with people who are ardently pursuing Christ-likeness. Now, nobody has, nobody has achieved Christ-likeness. This is Paul, Paul's point in Philippians 4. Nobody's there. However, you can tell the difference between those who are just coasting through life and those who, like Paul, make it their aim with all of their energy to become Christ-like. You can tell those who really care, who have made this their ambition, and those who are just coasting. Remember Paul's words. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? And then he says, run in such a way 
that you may win. Now, it doesn't take long when you go to the gym, especially if it's a gym with all with the, the track inside it. It doesn't take long to tell those who are running to win, those who are there just to hang out and meet people and those who want to improve. The same is true of Christianity. It doesn't take long to meet a professing believer of Jesus Christ and see, are they really pursuing Christ-likeness? Hang out with the people that are. And you can also read about other people in history who, are, who pursued Christ-likeness. In fact, our community group, for this very reason, is, is reading the life of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. And we're greatly being edified by it. Read other biographies. And so even if you can look around and you say, I don't see anybody that's ardently pursuing Christ-likeness. Well, there are people. In Scripture as well as in history. And so again, we can't become Christ-like just, just through our own discipline and through our own strength. And yet, as we genuinely pursue trying to be like Christ, He will give us the grace and makes the, make that effort fruitful. How can I say that? Philippians 2, 12 and 13, when Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. For... It is God who is at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see that? Yes, it's what we do, but ultimately it's what he's doing in us. He will use means. But yes, it's him. Another way to think of it is spiritual growth is, is like gardening. We plant. We find soil. We water. But it's God who's giving the growth. We don't cause plants to grow. They grow by God's grace. But he does use means. If, we're effect, if we are to be effective in saving souls, we have to passionately pursue Christ-likeness. I mean, notice the contingency in Christ's words to the disciples. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, be like me and then you will become fishers of men. It doesn't happen outside of the other. You're not going to be a fisher of men if you're not following Christ. If you're not trying to be like him. In fact, this is the one consistent trait that I've seen in the greatest evangelists in all of history. The one consistent trait in all of them despite all their different giftings, despite the different locations where they served, the, 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 the continual trait they all had is that they were godly men and women. They were godly. That's, that's the kind of person God uses to save souls. I mean, consider the Christ-like compassion of George Whitfield, arguably the greatest evangelist of all time. His friends said that he would sometimes weep exceedingly, frequently overcome by emotion. And that for a few seconds, it would even seem that he wouldn't even be able to recover. Be preaching to thousands of people and just be overcome with emotion. 
And he would say to his listeners, You blame me for weeping, but how can I help it? When you will not weep for yourselves, although your own immortal souls are on the verge of destruction, and for aught I know, you are hearing your last sermon and may never more have an opportunity to have Christ offered to you. When, when somebody sees that you are weeping over them, that you love them so much that that's why you're sharing. You're not trying to prove that you're right. You're pleading with them to be rescued. And they see it. They hear it in your voice. They see it in your eyes. They listen. And they listen to Whitfield. His friend and fellow evangelist Jonathan Edwards also recognized that it was humble compassion for the lost that was the fruit of truly grasping our need for Christ. Most, listen to what he says. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope, and their joy, even when it's unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy and leaves the Christian more poor in spirit and more like a little child and more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. I mean, that's the kind of person people will listen to when they see humility, when they see brokenness, and they hear it in your words. Robert Murray McShane, who led a revival in Scotland before he was taken by the Lord at the age of 29, he said this, It's not great talents God blesses, so much as great likeness to Jesus Christ. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. A word spoken by you when your conscience is clear and your heart full of God's Spirit is worth 10,000 words spoken in unbelief and sin. You want to be a great evangelist? Follow Christ in His character. There's no substitute for this. Your greatest need in evangelism is not to get more training. Your greatest need in evangelism is not to get more education. Your greatest need is not to get more resources. You just need Trust and follow Him. And ask for yourself. Ask yourself for the sake of the lost around you. In what areas of my life am I out of step with Christ? In what areas of my life am I out of step with Christ? What things are hindering your progress towards Christ-likeness? And are you willing to let those things go?
What are your hindrances? Is it your husband? There's your mission field. Pray for him. Plead with him. Live out Philipp, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Is it your children? And invest in them. Pray for them until they too have their eyes open to the gospel and they too are willing to join you in the same endeavors and they want to work alongside you in your evangelistic opportunities. Is it your boss? Then consider Paul's words to slaves. Colossians 3.22, he says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. This is what's really remarkable. A few verses later, he makes this evangelistic plea. So the the ideas are connected. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Do you see that? You want to reach your coworkers. You want to reach your boss so that you can be more freed up to serve Christ. Live like Christ before them. Let your speech be seasoned with salt so that as they see your Christian conduct, they would ask for a reason for the hope that lies within you. And then you can share it. Let your Christ-like conduct be a catalyst for a gospel opportunity. And in some cases, showing your devotion to Christ might actually mean leaving things behind. That's what it meant for the disciples. Following Christ means leaving like Christ. Notice the emphasis on leaving with both sets of brothers. In verse 18, Simon and Andrew leave their nets. And then in verse 20, James and John leave their father, they leave the boat, and even the hired hands. And realize when they were leaving their nets, they weren't just taking a coffee break. They weren't just going out to lunch with the rabbi. They were leaving their careers behind them. The only job they had ever known. We could tell from this text that they actually owned this fishing business. They were, they were entrepreneurs. They had invested their resources, their life, their energy. They had, they had, they had now reached, they were successful. They'd reach success. Jesus comes along and says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, and they leave it all behind. They were leaving behind what previously defined their significance. Why? In order to save souls. A century ago, the Standard Oil Company was making preparations to established itself in Indonesia. And so company executives were trying to find somebody who uh, would be the, the most qualified manager for their Indonesian operations. And they were informed that, that the man most qualified was actually a certain missionary who had been serving there. And so the company approached the missionary 
and asked him about his availability for this management position. Their offer was large and lucrative. And yet the missionary declined. So those seeking his service raised the offer. And still he declined. And finally they said, just name your salary. We'll pay it if the salary that we have named isn't even large enough. Just name your salary. And he said, oh, the salary's big enough, but the job isn't big enough. That's why he became a missionary. That's the heart of an evangelist. Also, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, arguably the greatest preacher of the 20th century, wasn't always a preacher. Many of you know he was a medical doctor. And not just any medical doctor, he was the clinical assistant to the physician who attended the royal family. In other words, he was being groomed to be the top doc in all of Britain. And therefore, really in all of the world. And he left all that behind to become a preacher. And even when he decided to give up medicine, there was no other church that would take him on because he didn't have a seminary degree. The only people who would take him on as a preacher was a mission society. They were just willing to take anybody. And so there was a missionary, a mission society that found a dilapidated old church in Wales that needed serious, serious revival. And so Lloyd-Jones was willing to take an immense pay cut to go to Wales and administer to this blue-collar, working-class village in a dying church. He left behind money. He left, left behind reputation. He left behind his fame. Why? Well, he explains... He gives his reason to his congregation because many people asked and he says this. If you knew more about the work of a doctor, you would understand. We but spend most of our time rendering people fit to go back to their sin. I saw men on their sick beds. I spoke to them of their immortal souls and they promised grand things. And then they got better and went back to their old sin. I saw I was helping these men to sin, and I decided I would do no more of it. I want to heal souls. If a man has a diseased body and his soul is all right, he is all right to the end. But a man with a healthy body and a diseased soul is all right for 60 years or so, and then he has to face an eternity of hell. Ah, yes. We have sometimes to give up those which are good for that which is best of all. The joy of salvation and newness of life. And recognize with James and John, they didn't just leave their livelihood. They also left their family. And again, this wasn't just like leaving the comforts of home. In the ancient Near East, This was leaving your protection. This was leaving your security, your identity. 
See, in this time period, it was family members that looked out for one another. Back then, blood truly was thicker than water. And they left it all behind. Why? Save souls. You know that John Bunyan was separated from his family for 12 years because of his commitment to Christ's mission. The author of Pilgrim's Progress wrote that book while he was in prison. He suffered in a cold, dark dungeon surrounded by many hardened criminals. But the prison conditions were not the worst part. He writes this. The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them. Especially my poor blind child, who lay nearer to my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. It was at the age of 44 when he was finally released from prison. And he looked back over the hardships of the last 12 years and he he wrote that what enabled him to get through that period was 2 Corinthians 1.9. And he quotes that verse, and then he says this. By this scripture, I was made to see that if ever I should suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can properly be called a thing of this life. Even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyment, and all as dead to me, and myself as dead to them. Bunyan learned that to follow Christ in his mission meant that he had to be willing to even lay his family upon the altar. This is what Jesus had to do. And hear hear the words of Jesus in this next verse and, and and the probable pain that also was behind them. Mark chapter 3, verse 33, Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here, my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And what I should point out is even right before he makes this, a few verses earlier in chapter 3, his mother and brothers were looking for him because they thought he was out of his mind. Jesus had to leave them behind. And it's interesting that Mark notes that James and John also left the hired servants. And that's interesting because Mark says so little. Why does he say that? Well, it seems to me that he's contrasting those who stayed behind in the boats for the sake of money And those who left their private business in order to go save souls. The hired hand stayed behind. It was the fishers of men 
who followed Christ. Notably, later on in Mark, Jesus says in Mark 10, 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, house and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. So what might you need to leave behind. In order to follow Christ. Like the disciples. Are you willing to leave behind your sense of identity? Are you willing to leave behind. All that you have invested your time. And your money in. Are you willing to leave behind even lesser things, luxuries, entertainment, games, hobbies? So you recognize that this call that Jesus makes to his disciples was not a call to life improvement. It was a call to loss. They leave things behind as they follow him. So let me ask you, wives, if your husband is listening to this message today, and on account of it, he senses a call from God to leave his job, to leave his country, and to go to Africa to serve an unreached people group, how will you respond? Or how would you respond if he says, just, I want to start a Bible study in our house on Wednesday nights. In order that we might reach our neighbors. Would you be willing to give up another night of your week? In order to reach the lost? Would you be willing to let go of one more night? To follow Christ in his mission. Let me ask you husbands. What if your wife. Comes to you after the church service and says. Honey. I want us to cancel our cable. And instead the money that we were investing in cable. I want. want, Can we give that to the missionaries that we support? And more than that. The time. That we would spend every Saturday watching college football? Could we instead spend three hours in prayer for the lost around the world? How would you respond? Would you be enthusiastic about that? Or would that come as a blow? Are you willing to follow Christ? If you want to follow Christ, proclaim the gospel. Pursue Christ-likeness. And stop clinging 
to the things in this world. Let's pray. Lord, the, the immense opportunity and glory to participate in your, in your great rescue mission. To rescue people from a, a, an eternity of damnation. Is, is gloriously tantalizing. And yet at the same time, Lord, we, we honestly confess that there is, there is much that weighs our heart down to. And we ask that you would cut the strings. That you would set us free. That you would give us the grace that you gave James and John and Simon and Andrew to leave it all behind and to follow you. To devote our lives to the greatest purpose that we could ever live for. So that it would be clear to all That redeeming love has been our theme and will be till we die. And that we would pursue it till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.